It is good to be with you this morning. Uh, my name is Dimitri. If we haven't met yet, welcome. Uh, we begin a study uh, in uh, the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, beginning today. Uh, and actually, that, so that's actually going to happen next week. Sorry, Trina. Yeah, Act 1 begins next week. And I'm, I'll explain that in a moment. Sorry about that. Uh, we let the cat out of the bag, proverbially speaking. By the way, uh, thank you for uh, being a faithful congregation and listening and studying the scriptures uh, as I've been out of the pulpit and Pastor Lewis and Nick and John have been, have been giving you guys the word. I, I've been regularly and repeatedly told uh, that you don't need me anymore. <laughs> and uh, it has been very good to know that I've basically been reduced to a mere redundancy. And so that's, that's humbling and, and, and important, by the way, because we want you to study the text, not the, the man necessarily in priority. And so... So thank you. Thank you for studying the scriptures uh, diligently. Um, before we begin, the, the sermon this morning is going to very much be a sermon that sets the, the tables, if you will, proverbially speaking, for the entire study. Right? It's important that as you begin studying about the book of the Bible, there are a couple of things that you need to kind of understand before you actually dig into the study. And so uh, before we read the text and pray, uh, I want to set the tables, if you want, in a number of different ways uh, for the, the, the study in the book and as well as this particular sermon. And the first way of setting the tables is I want to make a quick note on hermeneutics. If you don't know what the word hermeneutics means, it simply means interpretation, biblical interpretation. If you ask anybody on the street, you come up to a Buddhist, a Hindu, an atheist, a Christian, they're going to give you very different answers as to how they interpret the Bible, right? Or a secular psychologist, right? Uh, how they interpret the Bible. Um, it's important to note that the text of Scripture determines and defines how the text of Scripture is to be interpreted. So the way a Christian approaches the Bible is not as something they get to decide to mine and, and, and dig for meaning. The text is a self-evident revelation of God that tells you how to understand it and interpret it. Okay, so when we go to the Bible, we don't come as, you know, psychologist Dimitri or, you know, uh, Slavic Dimitri, right, or whatever intersectional point on, on the grid of human existence. You go to the Bible and you say, what does the Bible say about the Bible, right? If you think that's circular reasoning and you can't accept that, I can assure you you only have a choice between that circular reasoning and the other circular reasoning, which is to say that uh, if you bank out on discovering truth according to your own reasoning, then if you give me a reason why you believe that's true, you're, you're arguing in a circle. So the argument is not that circular reasoning, and there's a more enlightened way. The, the point is you have to pick one. Okay? And the Christian says, my authority is not the world, it's not psychology, it's not even science, although the Bible doesn't disagree with science. The, the Christian says the text drives how I interpret it. Why do I stress that point so importantly? Because um, I, I know as of late, and particularly in this congregation, many of you have been influenced in a positive way, I say, by conservative voices, right? People like Jordan Peterson or Ben Shapiro or other people. And for those of you who lean more liberal, I don't mean to alienate you. I'm just saying the fact of the matter, that there are people who glean from these voices. And they do say quite a bit of truth. However, uh, the Bible is not what 
Ben Shapiro says, as the best self-help book on the planet, right? That's not the goal of the scriptures, although there's a lot of help in it. The Bible is also not what Jordan Peterson would say, a great source of material to under, understand human psychology, right? It does say a lot about human psychology, but that's not the way we interpret it. We interpret the Bible based off of how the Bible tells us to interpret it. And, and two points, two sections of scripture that I want you to keep in mind. And you could even turn there, if you will, Luke chapter 24. In Luke's account of the gospel, he records the post-resurrection Christ, right? The appearance of Christ. And we learn in verse 27 that he comes across two disciples on the road to Emmaus um, who are questioning these things. Like, what is this resurrection thing? What is all that about? Um, you know, how is it that a man escaped the grave? All this, you know, important stuff, right? If you claim that somebody rose from the grave, you should have a reason for it. And so they're asking these questions, and Jesus shows up on the scene. And in verse 27, notice what, what happens. And beginning with Moses, by the way, Exodus is the, is the second book of Moses, right? Part of the Torah. So beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he... That is Christ, who's, the, by the way, the author of Scripture. He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. Okay? Then if you look further down in chapter 24, he then appears to the disciples, and in verse 44 and 45, he says this. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the note the categories, law of Moses, which includes the book of Exodus, and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So according to Jesus, the way that you are to interpret the Bible is not as a self-help guide. It's not as a moral, you know, exemplar of, of life and people who lived it well, I can assure you when you read it that that's, you're not going to find that. You're going to find sinner after sinner after sinner after sinner, mega sinner, right? Sinner after sinner, and then, you know, and more mega sinners in there. And then you're going to find Christ who saves them all, okay? And the point that Jesus is saying is if you want to interpret the Scripture correctly, you need to read it in light of who Christ is. That Exodus, if you want to read Exodus faithfully and study it faithfully, you need to understand how it points to Jesus, Okay? And so that's what we're going to do. When we study the text, there are going to be points of application. There's going to be points of moral significance and ethics, but it's more so going to help you understand how to read the Bible and see Christ. Okay? It's very, very important that I say that in this first sermon, okay? And to help you even see that, the second thing that I want to say with respect to the Mac, the, just the the setting the table, if you will, of Exodus, is to just from the get-go give you the overarching macro structure of the book. Okay, how is the book structured? Because look, as faithful Bible students, what you need to understand is people are not allowed to read the Bible out of context. You can't just pick a verse and make it mean whatever you want it to mean and then, you know, run with it. You need to read the context of what's going on in the text and then determine what the author is trying to say in the text. And in order to help you do that, I want to give you the overarching structure of the book so that you know as we're studying it where we are at in the book and how where we are at speaks to the whole narrative as a whole, okay? Are you ready? You guys can write this down if you want. Um, or, I don't know, take a photo here or ask me after service and I could send you the, the, the structure. But here it is. 
Um, if you think of it as like a playwright, the book is structured in three movements, three acts, if you will. Okay, act number one is titled God Saves. And that begins with Exodus 1, verse 8. So next week's sermon. Okay, next week's section. And from Exodus 1, 8, all the way through Exodus 15, 21, the whole narrative is about how God saves his people. Okay, then there's a brief intermission. Naturally, as human nature tells us, the people grumble about God saving them. Okay, uh, this is very insightful to the human condition. Exodus 15.22 to Exodus 18.27, the people grumble. That's a brief uh, period, an intermission point. And then Acts 2 begins with God speaks. He speaks. He saves, then he speaks. Exodus 19.1 through 31.18, followed by another intermission. Yours truly, human beings grumble and sin, right, in response to God speaking. So God saves them, they grumble. God speaks to them, they sin. Uh, and then... Lastly, Act 3, beginning in Exodus 35, 1, God settles. And that goes all the way to the end of the book. And at the end of the book, what you're left with is this feeling, that it? <laughs> right? Like, they built a tent, and they talked about how there's pomegranates in it. <laughs> he who has ears to hear, let him hear. <laughs> like, what, what, what? And then Moses, and then Moses erects the tent, and then the fire burns the the Holy of Holies and the altar, and then God's presence dwells in the, in, the, in the tent, and then Moses can't get in. And you're like, wah, wah, right? And so it begs for a fulfillment, of, of, of an ultimate fulfillment. The tent is not enough. The tabernacle is not enough. The sacrificial system of animals is not enough. People trying to do their best effort to make themselves holy with God is not enough, Right? Something has to happen. Someone has to come. And so this whole book, this macro structure, is really a meta narrative of the entire Christian experience. Christian, the whole book of Exodus is about God, and then it's about you. And when it's about you, it's not about how great you are. <laughs> when it's about you, it's describing how God has saved you. And the God of the Bible, he doesn't come to people and give them a law and say, Follow this and save yourselves. Because he knows they can't. Right? History, human history proves that. So just like God, first, before he speaks his standards and laws and commandments to the people, he first saves them because they can't save themselves. So he saves them. Then he speaks to them as a means of revealing his character and nature to them. And then ultimately, he settles with them. That's the story of every single Christian. If you're here and you're a Christian, here's what happened. God saved you. Out of your sin, out of your brokenness, out of your misery, out of your slavery, out of your hopelessness and helplessness. He didn't come in like a bully and a tyrant and says, obey, come on, figure it out. No, no, no. He comes in and he says, you are hopeless. And I know you're trying to figure it out, but you can't, so I'm gonna save you. And he saves you, and then after he saves you, he speaks to you. You begin to study the Bible, you begin to understand what it means, what it says, how it applies to your life, and then you begin to grow in hearing God and obeying him. And then ultimately, the future hope of every believer is one where they live with God forever. Right, so that macro structure of Exodus is the meta narrative of every Christian's life. It's very important to understand because when we apply the text to our modern day context, we're going to be doing that kind of work and understanding what's going on 
in the history of the people of Israel and then seeing how it ties in to where we are today. Okay, lastly, that was a mouthful, but it was an important one. Um, This particular sermon, I have to begin with a series of qualifications. Now, here's what I'm saying. I don't have to give these qualifications, uh, but I want to give them in case, because I won't be qualifying things that I'm going to be saying in the sermon. And so when we get to those moments, uh, if I don't say these things now, you may misunderstand me and then quote me out of context and then put it on YouTube and then I'm going to you know, have everybody and their mom after me uh, because I said something crazy, right? So, uh, or not. And, uh, <laughs> and it'll just live there you know, for somebody to, to make fun of. Okay. Here are the qualifications. You ready? Number one, the number of children you have does not determine your righteousness before God. (laughs) They get more interesting, by the way, but that's the first qualification. Okay. You're like, what is he going to preach about? Uh, The number of children you have does not determine your righteousness before God, Veritas Bible Church. I know that's hard for some of us to keep in mind. We're like, look at how many people, right? Our tribe prospers. That doesn't mean you're better than anyone, okay? People can raise a lot of heathens. (laughs) They've done it before. Um, Qualification number two. Having children doesn't, by default, guarantee their salvation. Just because you have them doesn't mean God is required to save them. Sometimes, again, because we're going to talk about some things with respect to God's promises that may sound like I'm saying, have kids and God's going to save them by default. And I'm not saying that. So hear me clearly. Having children doesn't immediately guarantee their regeneration their new birth. Number three, marriage, uh, this is a, okay, this one's, marriage isn't only about reproduction, which I know goes without saying. Well, I guess in our culture, it's like we marry for love, right? And the Bible has a different priority, okay? Um, uh, So so why I say that qualification is because I'm going to talk about the need for reproduction in the sermon. And I, I want you to hear it now to say, I wasn't saying that marriage is only for reproduction. Okay? Marriage is glorious to experience joy and love and pleasure. Um, it's also an v- excellent vehicle for sanctification. Amen? Amen. So marriage isn't only about reproduction. Uh, fourthly, having children or not, does not say anything about your value as a human being and especially as a member of God's family. This one is is a bit more serious, but it's a very important point. There are couples in this congregation who struggle with infertility. There are people who are single and would like to not be. There are people who have had miscarriages in our congregation, my family included. How many children you have or whether you have them at all says nothing hear me in this, nothing about your value as a human being, especially as a member of the family of God. It's very important to understand, okay? Because the sermon is going to make it sound in certain ways because there's certain biblical themes that are very important to unpack that may give you the impression, the wrong impression, if you're not careful, that that's what it's saying. 
right? That your value is predicated upon how many kids you have. No. And lastly, um, I'm not saying that there aren't situations and seasons of life where not having kids is a wise decision. Okay, I'm just saying this out there just for the wives and the husbands who like kind of turn over and go, eh, you want another one? You know, right? Like, so I'm just saying that may not be the case for you right now. Okay, so just, just hear that. All right, where's he gonna go with this, right? Where's he gonna go? We will see, we will see. Okay, let's read it and then let's pray. Exodus 1, 1 through 7. If you would, if you're able, would you stand and join me as I read uh, God's word? These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. This is God's word. Go and have a seat. So one of the characteristics of this section in particular, as well as the book of Exodus, is that it serves as a microcosm for the entirety of reality. And what I mean by that is, in layman's terms, microcosm means that what God does for the people of Israel here in this text and throughout the entire book, he does in a far greater uh, scale and sense for the church, the collective people of God across all time and space. So what he does here in our text, he does as a microcosm of the entire reality of existence. Let me explain what I mean by that, okay? In order to understand the book of Exodus, you have to understand the entire purpose and goal of the book of Genesis, okay? And in fact, many theologians will say that these first seven verses are somewhat of a summary text of the entire Genesis narrative. How so? So let's get into it. If you would open with me to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, what you will begin to see here is that we are introduced to what theologians describe as the cultural mandate. Uh, others have described this as the creation mandate. What do we mean by that? Well, here's what God says to our first parents, Adam and Eve. In Genesis 1, on the very beginning pages of Scripture, verse 28, And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So the command that God gives to Adam and Eve from the get-go, after creating everything, after establishing all of creation, is he says, have children. Lots of them. <laughs> Like a, a lot of them, like, like a lot of them, okay? You, you think three kids or five kids or six kids is a lot, right? He's like, just, you know, you've seen the rabbits, I've created them, you know? <laughs> Go for it. Have all the children you could possibly have, and they do. They do. 
But I want you to notice in verse 28, the way that he starts that command, this mandate, to fill the earth, to populate the earth, is by blessing them. So in the mind of a Bible-thinking person, children and population needs to equate or be in consequence with the blessing of God. Are, are you hearing me? Children, blessing. Population, large population, big, blessing, okay? He wanted to have the first image bearers fill the earth with other image bearers. Right? Adam and Eve are created in the likeness of God, and then God commands them to multiply and be fruitful and increase in the land so that he can populate the whole world with human beings. That's very important. And one of the things that we learn on the pages of Genesis is that the first 11 chapters of Genesis kind of summarize this entire endeavor of multiplication and filling the earth. And one of the things that's very important to understand about the first 11 chapters of Genesis is that in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, you really have everything that you possibly need to know about your life in the world. Okay, you want to know where intrinsic human value comes from, Genesis 1 through 11. You want to know where marriage and sexuality come from, Genesis 1 through 11. You want to know what the point of children is, Genesis 1 through 11. You want to know what the point of population growth is, Genesis 1 through 11. You want to know what the point of culture is, Genesis 1 through 11. Like, not even that, you think of all the issues, big issues of our world, racism, abortion, right? Transgenderism, Genesis 1 through 11. Like, you, you want to know anything about the world and what's going on in it, Genesis 1 through 11. It's the bedrock of the entire reality of, of the world as we know it. But what's also in addition to that is that Genesis 1 through 11 demonstrates to us how quickly humanity rebels against God. Right? We see the fall happen, but this rebellion displays itself specifically in antithesis to the cultural mandate. And I want to prove this out further. Do you remember what happens in Genesis 11 as that whole kind of bedrock text concludes in Genesis 11? What happens in Genesis 11? Turn with me there. What happens there? The Tower of Babel. Can anybody tell me what was the primary sin of the Tower of Babel? Pride, right? Somebody might say pride. Right? Somebody else might say, well, they were, they were constructing this tower as a means to build up their own name. So it was self-seeking, right? That's true. But there's a particular characteristic of the rebellion that is very important to keep in mind. I want you to look with me at the text. Let's read it together. Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. All well and good, right? We see pride, we see self-centeredness, but then look at how verse four concludes. What does it say? Lest we be dispersed. 
Okay, so the goal of them huddling together in a city and building a tower vertically is so that they do not expand horizontally to fill the earth. Okay, that's the sin. The sin here is that it's in rebellion against what God directly commanded Adam and Eve. He said, go multiply and fill the earth with people. And the people in the Tower of Babel are saying, hey, 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 forget what God said. Come together. Let's build a name for ourselves and build this tower and preserve what we got so we don't lose it. Otherwise, we'll die. So don't be dispersed in the land. Does that narrative sound familiar to you? What's the common popular cultural narrative of our day? The earth is overpopulated, and those of you who have many children, shame on you! <laughs> right? That's, maybe they won't say it that loud, but what's the common cultural narrative? It's like you look at a family who has a lot of kids, you're like, mm. don't you understand what our carbon footprint is? Right? Haven't you listened to the climate change doomsdayers of our day? Right? We have this cultural narrative that says populating and conceiving children and having children is somehow inherently wrong because of some wrong narrative painted in the minds of people concerning overpopulation. But that's not, you know, which by the way, it's interesting, right? The only people who argue for climate change doomsdayer stuff. Now, I'm not talking about climate change as a whole. I'm talking about the, the people who are like, hey, you, you don't, don't you do it. You know what I'm talking about. Don't do it. Right? The only people who are saying it are people who have done it. <laughs> or have had, their parents did it. And so they're there. And the only people who tell you don't populate the earth are part of the population. And then if you take that logic even further to the pro-choice argument, the only people who argue for that position didn't have a choice and were born. <laughs> and they're alive and they made it. And so our culture's answer to God's mandate in populating the earth is, hey, don't do it. Or, hey, if they make it in the womb, kill them. That's our world, right? But what's the sin beneath the sin? The sin of the doomsdayer climate change nonsense or the pro-choice argument of killing image bearers in the womb, that's not the main sin beneath the sin. The main sin beneath the sin is that that narrative slanders God. Let me explain to you how. God says fill the earth He's going to provide, and what you're saying is, no, he won't. He won't provide, number one, that's a slanderous claim. Number two, he's not generous. So if we populate the earth, we're going to run out of resources because obviously God's not in control and he can't figure this thing out. And not only that, he's stingy, like you. And thirdly, he doesn't care. 
Right? That would, I guess, I mean, he doesn't care would be the pessimist, but then the atheist would say he doesn't care because he doesn't exist, so you're on your own. Right? So this overpopulation myth and this, this idea of not bringing image bearers into the world is a slanderous lie against God saying he won't provide, so let's not procreate because he won't provide. Let's not procreate because he isn't generous enough to actually bring about the necessary resources for us. And let's not procreate because he actually doesn't care about you. Can you tell me where you've heard these lies before in the book of Genesis? In the garden. In the garden. God creates a garden, puts Adam and Eve in it, says be fruitful and multiply. And the serpent comes along and says, did God really say? Did he really promise? Is he really going to provide? Does he really care? Is he really generous? Maybe he's jealous of you. Maybe he's envious of you. Maybe you need to fend for yourself. Right? That, that's what the serpent says to Eve, in effect. And this unfortunate slanderous lie isn't something that non-Christians fall into. It's Christians as well. And this is more tragic, actually, because oftentimes Christians will hear other pastors or theologians take verses out of context and make them mean something they don't and then justify shaming families for having many kids. Right? And, and it's wrong. And, and here's one of the slanderous misconceptions and lies. Um, in Luke 23, you don't have to go there, but Luke 23, verses 26 through 29, Jesus is on his way to be crucified, right? And then Simon of Cyrene comes in and takes his cross, and we're told that a multitude of women come weeping to Jesus. And Jesus notably says to the women, he says, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. And there's going to come a time where it's better for you to be barren and childless, Right? And then some wise pastor, theologian, takes that verse and without proper exegetical uh, work, applies it to everybody and says, don't you see it's a bad world out there? It's really bad out there. So stop having kids or stop having a lot of them. Maybe you have one and good luck with them, right? But, if, you know your probability of success diminishes, right? This is kind of the, the, the understanding. And, and here's the irony. Here's the irony if you believe that. God wants to bless the world through people. He does. Now, I know our common cultural narrative is the world's a bad place because of people. Isn't that the reality? It's like, we need to save the earth. So let's kill ourselves or limit ourselves or destroy our carbon footprint, right? Uh, and God says, really? I created you so that you would bless the earth. God wants to bless the world through people. People build civilizations. People build societies. People build cultures. People build economies. People. And you have none of those things without people. God intentionally wanted people to populate the world so that he would bless the world through them. And uh, just to bring the point even further, uh, there's a 
very uh, influential economist and sociologist uh, named George Gilder. Some of you have heard of him. George Gilder wrote a, a book a long time ago called Men and Marriage, and he's addressing childless couples who don't want to have kids. It's not because they can't have kids. It's not because they're struggling with infertility, but they're like, no, we don't want to have kids. Ew, right? I'd rather have a dog or a cat. And as a cat owner, I could tell you, cats are far worse than children, okay? <laughs> far worse. I have two in my garage right now. They're sick with some skin disease and far worse than children. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's true though, man, it's, they're a pain. Um, George Gilder says, he says to, to, to couples who are married right, and don't want to have kids. They're like, God forbid we bring in a human being into this world, right? We need to enjoy our freedom. He says this, couples who choose to go without children in the name of sexual pleasure or in the fear of resource scarcity reveal an incomprehension of the nature of the human predicament. Those children themselves are our most precious natural resources, Children are not the problem, and being child-free is no solution. Free children in families that give them faith and discipline and moral courage afford most of the pleasures and solve most of the problems of the world. So he's like, you want to save the human race by not overpopulating it, and I'm trying to save the human race by populating it. Right? Right? It's, and it's like, as a Christian, and I'm not talking about people who don't subscribe to the Bible or biblical worldview, but as a Christian, if you see another Christian couple and you ask them, why are you, like, hey, how, how, you know, obviously don't ask them this on the first, like, hey, my name is Dimitri, why don't you have kids, right? Like, not a, not a good first conversation. But if, if it somehow comes about that there's a conversation you have with them and they say, ah, no, we don't want to have kids, they're a lot of work and... Um, we just want to, like, have our freedom, right? You should look at them as a child who takes a billion dollars and builds a fire with it. That's how you should see them. You're taking a billion dollars, and you're building a fire to warm yourself, and <laughs> are you, are you, is that an illustration stick? What I'm saying is you're wasting resources, you, you think that you're going to self-serve yourself by not having kids, but the best thing you can do for the planet is to have children. Remember the qualifications, okay? Because I know your mind is just like, I say children are my righteousness, and if I don't have children, I'm a terrible rag. Qualification, qualification. Um, children are a blessing, and it's through children that societies are built and, 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 and blessed. But not just any kind of children, can I get an amen? All right. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Malachi chapter 2, verse 15. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. If you want to turn with me briefly there, Malachi chapter 2. What you see is the prophet Malachi is addressing the people of Israel and Judah as they're profaning the covenant, as they're rebelling against God, as they're profaning worship in the temple of God, and the men are abandoning the wives of their youth and neglecting their fatherly responsibilities. Right? The prophet Malachi rings these words in 
Malachi 2.15, and he says, did he not make them, did he, that is God, not make them, that is husband and a wife, one? All right, did he not make them one with the portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Answer, godly offspring. Godly offspring. So God's point, ready? God's purposes in filling the world with people, right? There's 7.8 billion people on this planet. His goal in filling the world with people is so that those offspring, those people would be godly and would honor him and would bless the world. That's his goal. But you may ask me, well, have you read the Old Testament? Have you looked at human history? Right? uh, In the famous words of R.C. Sproul, what's wrong with you people? The offspring is nothing but godly. It's everything but godly. The offspring is not godly. I mean, that that would be a drastic understatement to say the offspring is is not godly. The, The whole course of human history is filled with ungodly offspring. Ungodly offspring. So now answer this question. What's the goal of population growth then? Right? We have 7.8 billion people on the planet. Uh, young earth creationists would argue that roughly uh, 35 to 40 billion people have ever walked this planet. Right? If you're an evolutionist, which I, say, I pray that you're not, but if you are, you, you may conclude that perhaps there's 105 billion people that have ever walked the face of the earth. If they all are terrible, why are we doing this thing? Right? Why are we doing this thing? Why do we keep birthing more godless offspring? It's funny because it's true. Why are we doing it? I know you parents can say an amen to this, right? You're like, man, I just had five of them, and I'm like, oh, God, protect the world. (laughs) Bubble bubble wrap the world. Uh, No, I'm kidding, obviously, but... Some of you discouraged parents out there, you may think that way, right? You may see sin in the life of your children. You may see sin in your life, and you may see sin in your parenting, and you're wondering, what's the point of this thing? So what's the point of population? Why does God want you to fill the earth? Still, because remember, after Genesis 11 happens, Genesis 12 happens. And you know what happens in Genesis 12? God calls Abram. And he tells Abram, I'm going to turn you into a multitude. And through your family, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Right? So that's what he tells Abram. And so Abram hears these words, and he believes God. But the blessing that Abram is believing for is not a blessing that will be derived from that multitude, but rather from one that comes through that multitude, namely the godly offspring, a.k.a. Christ. So the reason why God wants the earth to be populated, and continually so, is not because he wants to damn most of the world, it's because he wants to save most of the world, namely through his son, his own offspring. And so here's... Uh, I got to be careful to not sin here. But here's what gets, uh, as a Calvinist, here's what rubs me so wrong about other Calvinists, okay? We take the doctrines of grace 
and we present them as if they're bad news. Take the doctrine of divine election, for instance. God in eternity past chooses to save an exclusive number of people, right? And all of a sudden, the debate behind that doctrine turns into who's in and who's out. And, you know, it's a really small number, so watch out, you, 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 right? It's like we took something and made it mean something it doesn't mean. The exclusivity of God's choice. If he chooses a people, that means by default he's not choosing somebody else. The exclusivity of his choice says nothing about his generosity. It says nothing about the number of people he's going to save. And for whatever reason, oftentimes the misconception lands true because it's presented this way, that we think of divine election as something that, that, that is like God is going to have a small little island. He's going to put all his people on a small little island, and we're going to have a nice little party in the small little remote part of the world, and everybody's going to go to hell in a handbasket. Wrong! God's goal in populating the earth... and God knows when Jesus is going to return. If he doesn't return for another 10,000 years, think about the reality of that population that has ever existed on the face of the earth. If the population doubles every 40 years or so, right, which that's kind of what it looks like to be, right? In 1960, the world population was like 3.1 billion. In 2020, it jumped to 6.2 billion, right? In 40 years, it doubled, okay? So think, say, in 100 years, we're going to have like 14 billion people on this planet. And in 10,000 years, how many people would have existed? Some say Google. Now, you know what Google means. It's one followed by 100 zeros. Right? It's a multitude beyond number. And why does God want to populate the earth and continue populating the earth? It's not because he doesn't care or because he's absent. Because he's generous. It's because he's kind. And because he wants to save more people. He wants to save a multitude of multitudes that nobody could number. What does he tell Abram in Genesis 12? He says, look at the sky. Can you number the stars? What do you ask astrophysicists today, scientists who discover galaxies and look at the Hubble telescopes and look at all the various technology that we have to observe space, and we go, there's billions of galaxies out there, let alone stars. If you think that's daunting of a number to count, try counting the elect. That's the point, that God is going to save a multitude that will stagger the mind for an eternity, a multitude of multitudes. We're told this in Revelation 7. In Revelation chapter 7, this is this glorious vision that the Apostle John is having before the throne of Christ concerning the people that God has, is going to save through him. And we learn these words in verse 9. After this, I looked, as John is saying, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Just think about that picture for a moment. A multitude beyond number in one voice declaring these words. Salvation belongs to our God. Our God is not a scrupulous, scarce, pithy Savior. 
He's a generous Savior who saves a multitude. And so the question is not whether God is going to save most of the people that have ever walked the face of the earth. It will be that way. That's not the question. The question is, are you part of that multitude? Are you part of that multitude, friend? When you stand before the throne of God, and you will, will you be counted amongst this numerous multitude that cannot be counted? How can you know? How can you know if you'll be counted? Well, I can tell you how you won't know. You won't be able to know based off of how awesome you were and how many good things you've done. Remember, the people of God are saved out of their slavery and oppression, not because they're great, but because God is great. And what you're going to say when you stand, assuming you're part of this multitude, the way that you know you are is, is simply this. You're going to confess Jesus as Savior, as Lord. That's simply it. You're going to say, I've ruined my life with my sin, but he saved my life from sin and death. You're going to look at his nail-scarred hands and his bleeding hands for you, and you're going to say, yes, he took it. You're going to look at the cross, and you're going to be reminded of what you deserve and don't get. You're going to look at the empty tomb, and you're going to be reminded of the victory God has accomplished on your behalf. So you want to know if you're numbered amongst that multitude? Is there any inkling of a desire to make that confession in your heart this morning? To say, yes, I want to say Jesus is Lord. I want to say Jesus is Savior. He's done it. He's going to do it. If there's an inkling in your heart, then you can rest assured that you are on your way in experiencing salvation. That God is saving you even now. What should this kind of salvation instill in the heart of this glorious great multitude? We're going to get into some application here, and then we'll, we'll end our time. So to, I hope you understand the point, right? Like the first seven verses of Exodus are very important, because as we talk about how God is saving Israel, the point that you should get is God saves generously. He's not like this, like, let me save a hand few, a few and then everybody else is going to die. No, no, no. He's saying, let's save as many people as I possibly can, and I'm going to do it for all eternity. So that's, that's the point. And, he's, and he does it through the finished work of Christ, which is why Paul says in Galatians 3, by the way, he says these words. Do you remember Galatians 3? Here's, here's what he says in Galatians 3. He says, uh, in verse 7 through 9, he says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So it's, God is not multiplying the people of Israel here so that Israel will become numerous in number, the physical Israel. He's multiplying Israel, remember, as a microcosm to talk about what he's actually going to do with the nations because he tells Abraham, through him, the nations will be blessed. And so, what, and how, how so, Right? Well, through Christ. And here's what Paul says in, in Galatians 3. He says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham and the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, the nations, that's you and I, unless you're a Jew, welcome. Right? 
the Gentiles by faith. Which, by the way, if you're a Jew, you're still justified by faith. By faith, preached, uh, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify Gentiles by faith, preached the what? The gospel to Abraham. That's what Paul says. You know what Abraham got when God met him in Genesis 12? He got the gospel. And Abraham believed that gospel. He believed the promise that God's not going to destroy them, but he's going to save them somehow through a promised heir, a seed, an offspring that would come from them. And in that same promise, Christian, you and I believe and cling to. So the way that you know that you're part of the multitude of multitudes is if you believe the promise that Abraham believed, that Isaac believed, that Jacob believed. So then, Paul writes in verse 9 of chapter 3, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. He believed in Christ. See, that's what differentiates Christianity from Judaism and Islam and any other monotheistic religion. Right? They, everybody claims Abraham is their father. But what Christians are saying, Abraham believed in Christ. And the only way that you become part of the lineage of Abraham's covenant and Abraham, Abraham's lineage and legacy is by believing in Christ. Right? That's what differentiates Christians from Muslims and Jews. So where does this put us all? God desires that human beings multiply for thousands and thousands of years so that the number of people he saves in Christ, in Christ are beyond human comprehension. That's the point of the cultural mandate. Not so that you could tell God, look how big of my family is, right? <laughs> it's for you to say, God, look how kind you are in wanting to save all of them and saving them. It's trusting God. Now, if, if, if you understand that structure and you understand that paradigm, parents, how encouraging is it for you to look at your children and say, God wants to save them? What would that do for your parenting? What would that do for how you approach your kid when they sin? All right, I'm preaching to the choir here, okay? Like when I look at my kids when they sin, the temptation is to say, God, you're a liar. And I can assure you this world's going to be a terrible place as a result of my offspring. And God says, why don't you trust me? Why don't you believe me? Why don't you disciple them as if you actually believe what you say you believe? That, he, that I'm going to save them. That I'm going to uh, be the one who does it, not you. And that, uh, that I actually want to, Right? that I want to save your kids. Um, let me ask you a couple application questions, okay? And then we're, we're winding down. Number one, do you see the world as a place of God's promise to save, primarily, or a place of God's just judgment? Because right? both are true, but Christian, when you understand the salvific purposes of God and his desire to save many, do you go into the world and you go, ah, all these people are going to hell? Like, you, you go to your workplace, you're like, yeah, Bob's going to hell. Heather's going to hell. Uh, you know, Joanne, pff, HR, definitely going to hell, right? Or do you look at people in your workplace and you go, God wants to save them. And I have every reason to believe that he will. And the basis that you can say that is because he saved you. 
And if he's powerful enough to save you, you should know that he's powerful enough to save everybody. That's the point. Christian has no right to boast. You look at your sin, you look at yourself, and you go, he saved me, so that means he's powerful enough to save somebody that I didn't think was savable. So then how do I approach my kids? How do I approach my neighbors? How do I approach my coworkers? How do I approach my friends? Do I just write them off and go, piece of work? So were you. (laughs) So were you. Do you see the world as a place of God's promise to save? Or do you primarily see the world as God's place of just judgment? Which, don't get me wrong, there will be judgment, right? We believe in hell as Christians. There's a reason why we believe in hell. And non-Christians believe in hell too, or at least they want to believe in hell, right? Where does Hitler need to be, right? Where does Stalin need to be? Where does, you know, some people it's Biden, some people it's Donald Trump, like wherever you land on this, you know, it's like somebody deserves to be there, right? (laughs) It's just not you. Um, sorry, that was a rant, but you get the picture. Okay, number two, does the doctrine of divine election, as mentioned earlier, stir your heart to proclaim the gospel to every living creature? Or does the doctrine of divine election stifle your evangelism and effort in discipling others in Christ? Right? Does the doctrine of divine election, you go, I can't believe he chose me, but he did, and he's choosing a lot of people who won't believe that he's choosing. Uh, and maybe this person in front of me right now is that person. So does the divine, doctrine of divine election stir your heart for evangelism and love for your neighbor or stifle it? Number three, parents. Again, reiterating what I mentioned earlier, do you look at your children with eyes of faith or do you look at your children with fatalistic lies of failure and faithlessness? Or do you look at your children and go, nope, not him, not her. Repent. Repent. God has far more promise for your children than you might have in those fatalistic lies. Okay? He's far better than you are. Married couples, do you or do you not want to have children? Why or why not? The why or why not is a very important conversation to have. given what we've discussed, right? Knowing that God wants to save, wants to populate the earth and save a lot of the earth, like, you know, what? Um, And lastly, single people and couples struggling with infertility. Do you see yourself as being able to participate in the promise of God to bring about a godly offspring to himself? Do you see yourself as being part of that as a single person or as a couple who is infertile? for the moment. Do you see kids that are not yours as an opportunity for gospel witness? Remember, what's the basis of the promise? Biology or faith? Faith. So those who are truly sons of Abraham and daughters of Abraham are ones by faith. So if you're a single person and you look at other kids in this congregation, anybody who comes in here, do you see them as little ones that you are called to witness to and love and disciple? You can, and you should. All right. I feel like that's enough. Let's land the plane, okay? Let's land the plane, uh, and hopefully not crash it. Um, 
God wants to save a multitude. That includes you, by the way. If you're here and you're not a Christian, he wants to save you. He wants to save you from yourself. He wants to save you from your sin. He wants to save you from hell. He wants to save you from the wrath of God. He wants to save you. Okay? Um, and Christian, when you recognize that you are part of this multitude by faith, that that should instill in you a humble posture towards other people in the world saying, I should proclaim this gospel and I should have every reason to proclaim this gospel because God wants to save many. And if he can save me, he can save them. Amen? That's what he's going to do with Abraham's family, uh, Jacob's family, and he's going to do that with the entire nation of the people of Israel. And so with that, let's pray.